0: You're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Amen. Well, good morning, Bent Tree. Uh, my name is Chris Rothenberry. Let me get my first slide up here. I'm to make sure I'm well hydrated. And I'm a pastoral resident here at Bent Tree. And kind of as I unpack what that means here real quickly to explain how I made my way up here to be preaching this morning. Um, my wife and I um, have been at Bent Tree now for just over a year, and shortly after becoming members here, I felt this draw or urge to pastoral ministry, which I'd never thought before. Um, and so since bringing that to the leadership and the elders, there was an immediate response to intentionally train up myself and a few other men who expressed this interest. Um, so just as a quick note— This sermon has been looked over by several elders, so if you have an issue with anything I say, I think Jerry Shockley is taking requests after the service or any sort of gripes or anything like that. (laughs) But I can't thank the leadership here enough for intentionally pouring in. I mean, Pastor Paul and several others on Wednesday nights have been carving out hours of their time to make sure myself and a few others have been getting to get reps at preaching and stepping into ministry. Um, On top of that, started an online seminary just the beginning of January here. So getting a little bit more training, and everything after that is kind of up in the air. We're all open with our hands basically saying, we're ready to be trained. We want to dive in, get filled up, and we don't know what's next. Um, Part of that could be we bought a house in Eaton this past summer, and it seems like there's some divinely timed puzzle pieces that are maybe leaning towards planting a church there in the distant future. But like I said, a lot of it is up in the air. So I simply just give you that background and context to simply ask as our Bent Tree family, would you be praying alongside us, um, figuring out what this call looks like for myself and my wife, Michelle, that we'd be continuing to get filled up and trained and that our mind, soul, body would all be continuing to get strengthened and trained for ministry um, and also for our safety, just as we figure out what this looks like. Um, I don't think I'm terribly extreme in saying that if things don't really change, I don't think America's going to get more kind to Bible-believing Christians. So boldness, wisdom, And anything else you can think of, not just for myself, but I think for our entire Bentry family. Amen? Well, the text we have today is from the book of James, and I'll give you a moment to flip there. If you need a cheat sheet, you can go to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation, and slowly flip backwards. And if you hit Hebrews, you went a little too far. And I want to give you a little bit of context um, for James, because I realize that this is a standalone sermon. Jeff just wrapped up the gift series coming out of the Christmas season, and Paul is going through John right now. So I wanted to give a little bit of background on the the book of James and where this is coming from. So the author is Jesus' brother, James, who was quickly recognized as a leader in the early church um, after Jesus came back and then ascended back into heaven. And so it was written primarily to Jewish Christians with the focus of the practical application of the Christian faith using wisdom. I want you to think of it as a New Testament version of Proverbs. And a short subtitle for the book of James could be James encouraging God's people to act like God's people. And let me give you a quick heads up. James does not mince words. He is boldly declaring through this book that a profession of faith in Christ that produces no life change is worthless and actually damaging to the reputation of Christ. He's calling out hypocritical believers who are saying one thing but doing another. And the first action or behavior he's addressing Is how believers engage in trials and tribulations and how we're strengthened in the midst of them. And that's what we're unpacking today in chapter 1. It's hammered to a pulp here, but I'm going to be focusing on verses 12 and 15. However, I want to start in verse 1 and read all the way through verse 15 so we can get the full context. So would you stand with me as we read today's word out of reverence? James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exultation, and let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Let me quickly pray and we'll dive in. Father, our simple prayer this morning is more of you, less of me. May I be stepping to the side and may your Holy Spirit be working to illuminate and unpack the wisdom in this text. And even now, I'm just asking that your Spirit would be on the move for even those who are not in a uh, loving faith relationship with you and those who are, that this gospel today would not be old news and that it would impact us afresh and anew for our lives. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So our approach this morning is going to be a little mixed up. We're going to jump over verse 12, and we're going to start with 13 through 15, and then we're going to return to verse 12 towards the end of our time together. And here's why I want to do this. Verses 13 and 15 are talking about temptation to and consequences of sin that can come when we're in the midst of trials. And verse 12 is speaking to a reward awaiting those who are faithfully persevering in trials and resisting temptation. And there's some hard truths and 13 through 15, that are balanced really well with an amazing promise in verse 12. And this is the first truth we're going to see as we take it in our special order this morning. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he tempts no one. If you know your Bible, you might have contradiction alarms going off in your head right now, maybe. You might be saying one of two things. One, Jesus was God, but he was tested by Satan in the wilderness. Or, wasn't Abraham tested or in some translations tempted by God when God asked him to sacrifice his son Isaac? Great points. I knew you would ask, so I came prepared this morning. I wish I had an extra couple of hours to unpack Jesus in the wilderness. It's actually quite rich, but we're going to do a 30,000-foot view to understand the power behind that, and we'll continue moving on. Jesus was truly God and truly man. We'll never understand how that quite works on the side of eternity. If you've figured it out, I promise you haven't. But let me tell you two things with certainty based out of that. Number one, if Jesus ceased to be truly God for even a second, we would have no Savior. And two, if Jesus ceased to be truly man for a single second, he wouldn't have been a worthy once and for all sacrifice for our sin. Hebrews 4 in verse 14 beautifully says this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Satan's temptation of Jesus was actually an appeal to his humanity. But Jesus only met him with the rebuking of Scripture— And constantly pushing back against the three different times Satan tempted him. In Adam, our federal head, he was tempted and crumbled immediately under that weight and sinned so fast. But Christ never sinned. All this temptation was thrown and thrown and thrown and thrown upon him, but he never cracked. He must have been under immense suffering here on earth because what came against him was infinitely greater than anything we've ever faced maybe drive this home, I want you to imagine you're holding a barbell for weightlifting over your head. Let's say there's 50 pounds on there. Most of us might be in okay shape. Might be shaking a little bit after a few seconds. What happens if I throw 200 pounds on there now? I'm thinking most of us are now in the ER. How about 1,000 pounds? 10,000 pounds? 20,000 pounds? The world record is something like 400 pounds, so we're probably toast at this point. But Christ is holding a million plus pounds over his head and he never once fell. He was tempted, but he never fell. He never slipped. He was perfect. The pressure we feel of our temptations must pale in comparison to what Christ resisted. He who knew no sin became sin in order to become the once and perfect sacrifice and propitiation or payment for our sin. He is a king who lived a sinless life through his own virtue and righteousness. As for Abraham, moving on to the second maybe possible contradiction, We have to draw a distinction between God testing our faith and God tempting us to sin because he's only doing the former. As we've seen here, God is frequently going to test our faith to make it more steadfast and mature. So when God is testing Abraham, he's putting this heart-wrenching decision of having to sacrifice his son in front of him so that Abraham could affirm the faith he recently proclaimed in God. He was not tempting Abraham to disobey him his desired response was obedience and faith. Maybe writing it down this way will help drive it home. The purpose of trials is not to separate us from God, but to bring us closer to God. God's desire in a trial is that we'd actually take a step of faith towards him, in trust and lean not on our own understanding or turning devices to numb our pain. God cannot and will never be a promoter of something repugnant and abhorrent to his very nature evil, sin, etc. Trying to match evil and sin with God is like trying to push together two magnets with the same pole facing each other. They're never going to connect. Psalm 5.4 says, you are not a, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Several months ago, my wife Michelle, who has a far better nose than I do, smelled something musty and gross coming from our guest room, which is on the first floor of our home, and we tried various things to figure out what was wrong. We tried cleaning out the pipes all day above. Then we finally got a plumber out, and after an investigation, had the amazing news delivered that we had 50 gallons of sewage that had accumulated in our crawl space because a pipe had broken and cracked off and was now resting and spewing all that lovely stuff under our home. If you've never been lucky enough to experience a sewage issue, take a minute to give thanks to restoration companies on your way home. They charge a pretty penny for a reason, because nobody wants to clean up their own sewage. And their pair is now all wrapped up. But initially, the solution involved a very brave young man putting on a hazmat suit, crawling in our three-foot-high crawl space on hands and knees and throwing absorption pads into the sewage to soak it up and then drag those out. Just in case you weren't happy with your current line of work, there's other options out there. <laughs> and I'm going to take a guess and just say that as we're talking about this scenario and talking about a nice pond of sewage under your home, maybe your stomach turned over. Maybe your mouth got a little dry. Maybe you felt a little nauseous. That feeling, it's a fraction of how God feels about the tiniest of sins. I'm really stressing this because we have to understand where temptation doesn't come from in order to find its true origin. Temptation to be unfaithful or not trusting God is never from him. It's not God's fault if we feel far from him during a trial. I mean, look at what happened in Boulder County just a few weeks ago with this horrific fire that pretty much lasted, I think, about 24 hours. And within that time, about 1,000 homes and businesses were burned down. I'm not going to blindly stand up here and try and prophesy why that was ordained to happen. But I know for sure that God does not want our fellow Coloradoans to respond to this stress and heartbreak and immense trial by turning to alcohol or drugs to numb the pain, taking out this frustration and stress on their kids or spouse through Verbal or physical abuse. Turning to pornography or attending strip clubs to manage the stress by pursuing lustful pleasures. Becoming so greedy and worrisome about money and rebuilding that they forget to love their neighbor or give unto God first. If you get what I'm seeing, get, if you see what I'm getting at here, there's a distinction between God ordaining a trial we face and our response to temptation in the midst of that trial. So, who is responsible for sin? Who's to be blamed when temptation we're drawn to this temptation that causes us to sin in a trial? You might have already figured it out if you worked ahead in your homework and looked at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and desire, enticed by his own desire. We alone are to blame for our sin and the desire and motivation to sin. Let me say it again. We alone are to blame not only for our desire to sin, but also the motivation to sin. John Calvin said it like this when he was in his commentary on this passage of James. The meaning is that man in vain evades, who attempts to cast the blame of his vices on God, because every evil proceeds from no other fountain than from the wicked lust of man. Every evil proceeds from no other fountain than the wicked lust of man. Verse 14 in James is not alone in the complete word of God of placing the responsibility of evil squarely on our shoulders. We love to try and escape that responsibility, though, as best we can. Why not? Adam, our federal head, did the same thing. If you want to turn with me real fast, we're going to look at Genesis 3, which is the very first book in your Bible. And for a little bit of background of what's going on here, uh, God has just finished creation. He's created the heavens and the earth, the waters, separated land from the sea, and to cap that all off, he's now created man and woman, image bearers, unique in his creation. They were given one command, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And our story picks up right after they both then quickly went after being tested by Satan or prompted by him to eat that fruit. So this is Genesis 3 starting in verse 8. And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, Catch this. The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Are you seeing these expert level redirects from Adam and Eve? Adam blamed God for his sin. The fact that God did not smite him on the spot is a true act of mercy and grace we do not give enough credit for. Eve, in her husband's amazing example, follows after him and blames a serpent for her sin. It looks outrageous, but it really doesn't play all that differently in our lives, does it? We do not grasp the ugliness of our sin, and we love to shift responsibility any chance we can get. Now, you could make the argument here that a devil, the devil is a deceiver, and he was the one that should take some responsibility. And he will in the final days. Or what about the influences of the carnal world? Spirits of darkness are alive and well in the 21st century. I'm not going to deny that. But notice how James is giving zero language to that. James knows very well about Satan's deceiving ways, but his call for responsibility is squarely on our shoulders. It's almost as if James is saying this. The argument, Satan made me do it, will not justify you on judgment day. Whether you want to blame the devil or the world or God, at the end of the day, responsibility is on us. Before we were saved and regenerated for true followers of Christ, the devil in the world did not have to seek us out to tempt us. We were born with sinful desires, and we drank down iniquity like it was fresh water. We were conceived in sin and born in iniquity. We were diving into that headfirst into that nice pond of sewage, and we don't understand the root cause of evil and temptation. In order for the gospel to be beautiful, we have to start with the depravity and ugliness of that sin. Good news is only good news when we know the depth of what we've been saved from. And most people don't think they're bad people. They're good people who make mistakes. Jeffrey Epstein, worse as they come, bad as they come. Hitler, absolutely evil. But me, telling a white lie, using God's name in vain, that's just part of being human. I just slip up from time to time. Look at this paraphrase exchange between Vodi Bauckham, who's a well-known Reformed pastor, and a college student about evil that may help ship this for us. I'm going to read off this paraphrase transcript. Student, if you believe in a God that is omnipotent and omnibenevolent, how do you reconcile the issue of theodicy? Vodi. took a semester of philosophy, right? Student, well, yes, I did. How did you know? Vodi. because if you hadn't, you would have just said, listen. God's so powerful and so good, how come bad stuff happens? But I'm not going to answer the question until you ask it correctly. The proper question is this. How on earth can a holy and righteous God know what I did and said and thought yesterday and not kill me in my sleep last night? Until you ask the question that way, you don't understand the issue. You believe the problem is out there. You believe there are some individuals who somehow don't deserve anything besides the wrath of Almighty God end quote. Why doesn't God eliminate all evil from the world? Because he would start with me and you. Temptation comes when we're enticed by our own lust. Yes, sometimes the devil and his spirits may collaborate to tempt us, but they can never be blamed because they're only giving us something that we already crave. The origin and temptation of evil comes back to our own hearts. James in verse 14 doesn't say by Satan's evil desires or by the world's evil desires. It says by our evil desires, we are dragged away. I promise you, there's some good news coming, but we have to acknowledge that even as regenerated Christians, we're going to be wrestling with our old sinful nature until the day we die. But we're not alone. What is the root cause of temptation? Our own heart and its evil desires. We are born-again believers, But the stench of death lingers. When you have some time, it might be an encouragement to go read Romans 7 in its entirety. And you'll see the Apostle Paul, who wrote a good portion of the New Testament, wrestling with the same idea. He says this towards the end of Romans 7 So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul wants to do good, but is acknowledging that evil is coming from him alone. He feels wretched and powerless in his own power. So he points to the only source of deliverance, Christ. So what are the consequences of that sin? We've now talked about verse 13 and 14, but what are the consequences of letting sin grow? Look at verse 15 for this flow of reason. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Now, depending on your translation, you might have a different phrase than birth to death, but I thought that was an interesting paradox. Birth to death. How can an act that brings forth life be compared to bringing forth death? I don't think you have to be a parent to know that birth and labor is pretty intense work. So here's the underlying theme with this progression that I see. Sin and its consequences demand time and effort. Giving birth is no accident. It requires time, support, pain, effort, and unbelievable energy. I'm guessing. Similarly, after your initial desire to temptation has been conceived, it leads to sin. That sin, if allowed to grow and mature, Will give birth to death. Maybe it'll help to imagine a large garden that you're wanting to plant, and you buy some seeds, and those seeds are those small initial desires that you're tempted by, that you put in the soil, and you consciously bury it and keep it there, but you continually water it, as you continually test it and test it in giving into sin because these temporary pleasures are what you're pursuing. So pretend I have a little watering can. I'll take a quick look at porn this week to dull the stress. You know what? That was a stressful day at work. I'm going to vent by gossiping and a brother and sister in Christ to someone else instead of taking it to them. You know what? I will go work that 60-hour work week because I'm so wrapped up in the image of success and working hard, even though my family might need to be neglected. I'm living a little bit beyond my means, so therefore I'm going to have to work more and become a little bit more greedy to sustain that. Feeling a lot of insecurity, so I'm going to go scroll social media for a little bit. Judge other people so I can feel mightier. I'm going to channel my fear into being more outspoken about masks or vaccines or politics than the gospel. I feel a little bit of anger and entitlement growing, so I'm going to chant or hashtag Let's Go Brandon instead of honoring and praying for our government like Scripture commands me to. I'm going to spend more time listening to the Daily Wire or CNN or other political commentators so I can judge the wicked while I feel righteous about myself. We keep watering and watering and watering these seeds with our sin, and before we know it, we have a full-blown garden, overwhelmed in our heart and mind. If we let sin mature, like verse 15 says, the only outcome is death. Death, or thanatos in the Greek, means a separation, whether that's physical or spiritual. At a basic level, that's what death is. It's separation. When we die our physical deaths, our bodies are separated from our souls. But in a spiritual death, we are separated from God for an eternity. And that doesn't mean we're handed over to Satan for him to torture us in hell. God is in control of hell. So you're separated from his good, loving kindness, but he's still pouring out his just wrath. So let's compare James 1.15 with Genesis 3. Adam and Eve's desire to be like God, knowledge of good and evil, caused them to sin, which led to death or separation from God in the perfect garden of Eden that he had created for them. And then eventually later in their life, they had a physical death, death. So here's my simple plea. Don't let sin grow. This is Paul's encouragement to you in Romans 8, verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We put to death and separate ourselves from our sin through what? The Spirit. I was trying to find a really great quote to wrap this up and make it sound great, but sometimes there's some wise men who are already passed away that nailed it on the head so I don't have to do the work. John Owen said this, be killing sin or it will be killing you. So how do we put to death sin on this side of eternity? You ever heard that very popular Christianese saying, God never gives us more than we can handle? It sounds kind of reassuring. You know, God is tempting us based on our levels of strength and our rough seasons, but it's not supported in Scripture. In fact, it's actually directly opposed to what the gospel message is all about. We are so dead and overwhelmed by our sin, there's nothing we can do in our own power to regenerate ourselves and earn God's favor. It takes a divine, sovereign act of grace for God to breathe life into our lungs and renew every fiber of our sinful being so that the sin we used to love now becomes repulsive. God is constantly testing us with more than we can handle. So we'll turn to him and lean on Christ instead of our own pride and power. That is the proper reading of Philippians 4.13 when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul A man who spent most of his life being mocked, beaten, imprisoned, and cursed at is desperately looking to Christ as his only source of hope. It's not a verse that we tattoo on our back or paint in a gym so we can pray over it to bench press 400 pounds or go win a state championship. It's a verse to pray through those long days of putting sin to death and facing persecution. It's a holy prayer. Or once again, listen how Paul is confronting this idea in Second Corinthians chapter one in verses eight through ten. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we are experiencing in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. I wonder if that might hit home for a lot of us this morning. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death but that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him have we set our hope that he will deliver us again. Christ will strengthen and deliver us, whether here on earth, for whatever trial we're in, or until it comes until eternity. So flip that script you see in James one fifteen, by comparing it to what happens in Romans 5, 1 through 5. I have it up so you don't have to flip there. Romans 5 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Pay attention to this. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you see that amazing contrast? Instead of suffering leading to desire and sin and death, suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. Hope that would not put us to shame. So instead of being drawn into that temptation during a trial, persevere and grow in Endurance. As you water that endurance with prayer and gathering with your brothers and sisters in Christ and studying the word and so much more, you'll start to spring leaves and roots and grow. And before long, you'll be a strong, mighty tree like the one you see in Psalm 1, planted by streams of water that will produce fruit because we're planted in Christ. So here's your positive garden, if this helps you out a little bit. That inevitable trial hits. Maybe it's a freak fire in Colorado. I think it's one of the latest I've ever seen in Colorado in December. Or maybe someday we're persecuted for being Christians. Your local church rallies around you to mourn with you and provide for you. When those really night hard nights hit and the stress seems unbearable, you're resisting that urge to sin. You text or call that brother and sister in Christ and confide in them. Or maybe it's your spouse or your roommate. Maybe you slip into sin and give in to that desire. Confess, repent, and sprint to God. And when you get that call, you encourage your brother and sister and point them back to God. As you're doing this, you're enduring and you're growing in character. And as you face more trials, that character has grown and matures and it starts to produce hope. Hope that isn't rooted in the security of a home or belongings or materialistic things or anything else besides Christ. Hope rooted in something deeper and steadfast. When you're enticed by these desires, inevitably, identify them, repent, and cut them out. Give those seeds no water. This is now going to set up as we start to work backwards here into verse 12. Because like I said, this verse is rich. Verse 12 of James 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial. It doesn't say blessed is the rich or the wealthy or the well put together like we may think in our developed country. It's actually coming right after verse 11 in James, where it says so that the rich will fade in their pursuits. Blessed here is the Greek word makarios, which can mean happy or blessed, but we're actually missing the congratulatory tone that comes with it. It's almost like God is proclaiming this blessing, like a parent giving their kid a medal after they've just finished a competition. This is a blessing promised for believers who remains steadfast under trials and temptations? Hunter Wiley unpacked this idea of steadfastness during his sermon last semester during the preaching cohort, which I encourage you to go watch the full thing. But at its core, he was talking about steadfastness being staying and praying, like a lighthouse on the coast of a sea. Those winds are going to come, the salty water is going to come, but you're standing steadfast. Lean on Christ. If you're feeling broken or crushed under the weight of your sin, stop fighting with your own power, rest in Christ. If you're truly one of his sheep, he's going to protect you and secure you until the end. When we've endured these tests, verse 12 is then telling us that God is going to give us a crown if we remain steadfast. So what is this crown? There's actually five of them mentioned in scripture, and I don't have the time to unpack all of them, so I encourage you to go learn about them by yourself. But this crown of life is actually referenced again in Revelation chapter two. In verse 10, it says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And there's a little bit of debate, actually, over what this crown of life is. The first idea says, which I actually tend to disagree with, is that this is something that is tied to eternal life, which makes it almost sound like our eternal life is tied to our works. Christ alone secures our salvation. So that's the first idea, that the crown is somehow salvation or eternal life that's put upon our heads if we endure. The second idea, which I would submit as the better, more biblical idea, is that this crown is a reward. In our culture, we're thinking of crowns relating to Queen Elizabeth and her royal family, but this idea of a crown in the Bible is actually more of a wreath that they would put on the head of a victor of a competition or um, some sort of race. Again, with that congratulatory tone of like, you did it, you persevered. Maybe this definition will help. The crown of life is a unique reward for followers of Christ, sorry, who endure trials and temptations while staying obedient to God. If you're in the midst of a severe temptation or trials or persecution, be encouraged and remain steadfast. Christ is waiting at heaven's gates to put this crown on your head. I don't believe it's going to be a physical crown I think it's going to be some sort of blessing or honor recognition that comes along with the new reign of Christ when he comes back. Scripture doesn't speak heavily, however, on what these crowns look like, so I also am not going to speculate much further. I think the main point is that this crown is supposed to be an encouragement, even on our darkest days. God is right by your side, and he will not abandon or forsake you. Wade Williams uh, has this incredible analogy in a sermon he also preached in the cohort. If you haven't caught my subtle plugs yet, to go watch those. He talked about the developing bones of his young son. Um, And the bones of a kid, if you don't know, actually need stress in order to send these resistances and shocks to the brain and the body to say, we need to reinforce these. It's crucial for the development of strong adult bones. So as Wade was talking about, every time his young son goes WWE style off the top of the couch and lands on the floor, boom, there's a message being sent from the bones to the brain. Hey, we need to hold this leg and body steady. Send some more calcium and vitamin D. We need to reinforce and get really dense. So if you're working ahead with it, you, you might see the comparison to our faith. All of these shocks and blows of life lead to a solid, dense faith that shouldn't shake. And when we're called home, if we're persevering, there's an amazing crown and reward awaiting for you, being held by your beautiful, perfect Savior. Like a little kid, when we jump off that couch and maybe one time we sprain our ankle... We don't turn to our brother and sister and punch them or yell at them out of anger. Instead, with our tears in our eyes, we turn and run to our Savior Jesus, like I've seen Wade Sunday with him many, many times, who is waiting for us with his arms wide open. Open his word. Pray. Gather like you are this morning and rejoice in the trials that are going to produce a steadfast faith. If you're here this morning and don't have a faith in Christ, let me just level with you for a second. I'm willing to bet that you've seen some trials and struggles in your life. And I can't imagine the pressure of having to push through those by your own power. I'm imagining it feels impossible. So the answer is quite simple. Turn to Christ. Repent of your sin. Acknowledge you fall infinitely short of God's perfect, glorious standard. And believe in Christ's finished work on the cross. Where he gave himself and his life in the ultimate act of love to secure your salvation. It's just that easy. And I can't stress it enough. Salvation is coming through Christ alone. James is not trying to push us as believers into a works-based salvation where every slip-up in a trial and every time we give in to temptation, we wonder if we're truly saved. That's not the point here. He just wants God's people to act like God's people. So when these trials come, we rejoice in them and remain steadfast. And when the temptations come in the midst of these trials, we resist them and lean on Christ. And when we do slip up, We can turn right back to him. As I wrap up, I wanted to try something a little different this morning. I've actually asked the band to delay in coming up. I know oftentimes as we're closing, there'll be music building, but I kind of wanted to give some silence and some space to just sit. It might be a little awkward. It's okay. We're going to get through it together. But it's actually going to be maybe a minute, minute and a half of just silence. Feel free to pray, close your eyes, whatever works. But I just want you to sit and reflect. Give the Spirit a moment to sort out anything that might be from me and let it fall aside and let whatever the Spirit is doing in you to sit and resonate as we move into the week. You guys feel good trying that out? So let me pray for us and once I close, we'll silently reflect together. Father, we can't thank you enough for your word and the fact that we have the freedom and privilege to access it freely um, in this country. May we never take that for granted. And as we hear your word this morning and James' encouragement to act like your people, um, I just, I pray against any sort of weightiness or um, the power of the law resting on the shoulders of anyone here. May they rest in Christ. His work is completed. Our sin is paid for. This is simply an encouragement to remain steadfast and see trials for the blessings that they are in our life, even if they don't feel like it. And Father, we thank you for the finished work of your son that we can rest in. And the fact that there is a crown waiting for us if we can persevere and lean on the tools and the spirit you've given us to persevere through trials. We love you, Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bent Tree Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit bentreechurch.com.